The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Previously on ARC. Which female character or characters from any Star Trek series would you most want your daughter to look up to, emulate, and aspire to be like? The easiest answer would be Captain Janeway. She's a scientist who became a starship captain. She was a woman who knew she was a woman and insisted on being called ma'am instead of the Star Trek neutral sir. She was authoritative and compassionate, and she was an inspiration to her crew. But I just never thought that she was really competent as a starship captain. Her compassion for the Okampa got the crew stranded 70,000 light years from home, which meant she cared more about the Okampa than she cared about the safety and well-being of her crew. Now, for me, my favorite female character was Commander Shelby, who appeared in the next-gen episodes The Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2. Decade Battlebridge. Halt. Commander, you and I need to have a conversation. You never ordered me not to discuss this with the captain. You disagree with me? Fine. You need to take it to the captain, fine, through me. You do an end run around me again? I'll snap you back so hard you'll think you're a first-year cadet again. May I speak frankly, sir? By all means. You're in my way. Really? How terrible for you. All you know how to do is play it safe. I suppose that's why someone like you sits in the shadow of a great man for as long as you have, passing up one command after another. Proceed to deck eight. When it comes to this ship and this crew, you're damned right I play it safe. If you can't make the big decisions, Commander, I suggest you make room for someone who can. Despite her antagonism in that clip, her authority, ambition, expertise, and counsel challenged and complimented Commander Riker, and her insistence and bravery to not just stand up to Riker, but to the Borg, helped cement her as one of the finest examples of a Starfleet officer ever shown in Star Trek. She's someone that I would be very happy to see my daughter emulate. In September of 2016, for Star Trek's 50th anniversary, I recorded an episode answering questions from listeners about Star Trek. It's not often that I reference previous episodes, especially in my introductions, but this one now carries more meaning. On this episode of ARC, I had the fortune of having a conversation with the actor who played Commander Shelby, Elizabeth Dennehy. Listen as I learn about her life and stories about film, family, Shakespeare, and the stage. This is ARC. God bless television. To the movies. To good movies. To every possible kind. Make it so. Where are my dragons? Yo, Adrian! Nothing for you! Welcome to Earth. Stick around. No slices for white. Clever girl. And they mostly come at night. Mostly. I'm 37? Are you the key master? I'm Omar. Who the hell are you? Omar! Omar coming, yo! Omar, yo! Omar coming, yo! Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Arts Review and Commentary. My name is Omar Ladiri and thank you very much for listening. As always, this episode is brought to you by Fandango and ARK's Amazon page. 
Click the Fandango and Amazon buttons at artsreviewandcommentary.com or omarlatiri.com to help this show and the other shows on the Realm Network continue to provide free, on-demand news and entertainment. I'm here with a, a formal invitation. Oh. And um, it's for you, Whoopi. Oh, well, for me. Um, Alex Kurtzman, who is the senior executive producer of Star Trek Picard, oh. and all of his oh. colleagues, of which I am one, want to invite you into the second season. Oh. On January 22nd, 2020, Sir Patrick Stewart appeared on The View and asked his former Star Trek The Next Generation co-star Whoopi Goldberg to reprise her role as Guinan for the second season of the new CBS series Star Trek Picard. Goldberg accepted with obvious delight, and Trekkies everywhere were thrilled. Star Trek's decades-long history is rich with wonderful characters played by terrific actors, and it's no wonder that it has inspired many fans throughout the world. For me, it not only inspired my love of the performing arts, it also informed a lot of my leadership styles while in the United States Air Force. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak to one such terrific actor, Elizabeth Dennehy. Thank you very much for joining the show, Elizabeth. My pleasure. First of all, let me just say congratulations. You just came off a very successful run of The Humans at San Diego. You had right. a lot of good reviews. Finished on Sunday. It was a blast. It was so much fun. Likewise, I just came off of a production in Silver Spring stage of David Henry Huang's Yellow Face. I've um, never seen that. It is a great show. I love the script. It's it's uh, It touches on all the things that I really dig about theater and identity. And uh, one of the things that I liked in the reviews was that when the reviews were, you know, positive... But when it came to my role, it was like, and Omar was also there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you know, those are important parts. Yeah, no small parts, only small actors. Well, they couldn't do it without you, right? I, I'd like to think so. I actually had a very good time in that. Um, I, it was one of those uh, multiple parts roles where you go in, you play one part, go off stage, quick change, come in, play another part. I love those. I did a... Um, a Cyrano de Bergerac with seven people. And I had a blast doing that, changing my clothes constantly, wearing all my clothes underneath the costume. And yeah, it was really, it's really fun to do that. How long have you been doing theater, first of all? Oh, well, I mean, professionally or in life. In life, my father had us playing the No Neck Monsters in Kananahatan Roof when we were babies and um, the fairies in The Tempest. I mean, we've always been on stage in his, you know, community theater productions and dinner theater productions. And then um, when I professionally, I went to college, I was a theater major and my first job out, out of school was the New York Shakespeare Festival, Henry V with Kevin Klein. Oh, wow. Throwing yeah, you in the so deep end. An and I thought, okay, this is the way my life is going to be. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, so that was great. Um, I understudied Christine Nielsen, who played the French uh, queen and hostess quickly. And I thought, oh, it's just, this is just the way my life is always going to be. 
so a long time. That was 84, 85, I want to say, with Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I will say this. I have not done theater, like, consistently, especially the older I've gotten. There's been huge gaps. You know, I, I think the last play I did before I did The Humans was four years ago, and it was a very small part. So I never saw this coming. This really took me by surprise to have something so juicy and so rewarding, you know, and I'm, you know, in my late fifties and the older you get in Hollywood, the the fewer and fewer roles there are. So uh, this was a real gift. When you got the role for the humans, did you audition for it? Well, it, yes, I did. But I was also... Um, in 1995, I did a production of Streetcar Named Desire at South Coast Rep uh, with this actor called Jeffrey Meek. He was Stanley, I was Stella, and we really loved working together. And he was playing Eric, and he told the casting director and the directors about me and said that he thought I would be a good Deirdre. So they auditioned me based on his recommendation, and I don't, th- I don't know if without it, if I would have gotten cast. Because well, there's is... a lot of really good actresses in their upper 50s and early 60s. There's there's a plethora of us. And so um, I'm just so glad it all worked out. I think there's a certain sort of reassurance for me, knowing that the audition process in professional theater is not unlike that of community theater, which I've been doing since 99. And mm. uh, the next gig I have is a music directing gig, and that was, I got that off the recommendation of none other than my ex-wife, who we met doing theater. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. So it's much the same. I mean, people, it's unrealistic to think that people are just going to blindly have nobody in mind for a part when they decide to direct something. If they've directed anything, they have people in mind that they've worked with in the past or, or somebody says, Oh, I know somebody who would be perfect. I, um, I directed 12 night at the high school where I teach Shakespeare. And of course I had people in mind. And then those people either decided not to audition or somebody blew my mind at the audition. And it was like, Oh, I never thought of this person, but that would be very interesting. But everybody has notions of who could play this, who I hope comes in. I think that's unrealistic to think otherwise. When you hear about the reputation of other performers from other people, does that Uh impact in casting? I think it probably does. Yeah. I mean, I think think if somebody was to repeatedly hear about um, somebody that they were difficult, I mean, or couldn't remember lines, I mean, if you heard it maybe from one person, you might not believe it, but if you heard it over and over again, I think it would absolutely impact. The other thing about casting, and especially in Hollywood, is casting directors have a roster of people that they that they work with, that they like. They have to have auditions. You have to have equity open calls. But very rarely are you going to get cast from an open call, sight unseen, nobody knowing who you are. I mean, that happens in the movies. That It's very hard for that to happen. You know, so... That is very, um, very useful to know about the fact that they'll do self tape. They'll send a self tape in and they'll spend hours on it 
and never, and they can tell that it wasn't even watched. And it's because every job that you're going in for has offers out to names. I mean, let's be, be realistic. I just assume that they have offers out to names. Well, this is all and, news to me because I am, I've only done community theater. And yeah. uh, I'm, I have never had any representation. I've never been on any television or film. So hearing all of this is helpful for those of us who, the two or three listeners who are going to be taking your advice and uh, wanting to go into acting. The, would you say you have cultivated a reputation that you're aware of? Probably with a few. See, now the problem is, is all the casting directors are so young. So when I was starting out, those casting directors who are older than me, I'm 59, they're leaving. They're by one way or another, they're kind of disappearing. So you have to be in the public's eye and constantly develop new followings. I mean, I have a few casting directors who have known me from when I first started out who still bring me in, but it's getting fewer and fewer. It's it's unbelievably difficult. Look, my son is 22 and is in and is starting out. He graduated from the DePaul Theater School. He um, did his graduate showcase. He got signed right away by DD&O. And since he graduated, he's done he did a starring role in Chicago Med, a voiceover, a short film, a play. I mean, he's nice. really been cooking with gas. And you need, you know, if you don't do that, if you're not, you know, get booking stuff right out of the gate, there may be a problem. You may not be marketable or castable. I'm not saying you're not talented, <laughs> but you have to be marketable. You have to, they have to be able to look at you and see dollar signs. And that's what it's all about, baby. Yeah, uh, really the commoditization of your own person. Yeah. yeah. How would you say it, um, theater, yeah. uh, auditioning for theater versus television or film, what are the differences there? Nobody want, and nobody is looking for a film actor for a theater audition because we they have to have the voice. We have to know that you have the voice that can fill the theater and be heard even by, you know, old people with their hearing aids in the back row. So if you go in and you do a very intimate, close audition that can be heard by only the reading partner, you're probably not going to get hired. Is that typical I'm of film or television actors that they, they can't do theater because they're quiet? No, 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 they can't do It's not that they can't do it. It's you have to adjust the scale. You have to be able to go um, into a theater on the stage at the Geffen and be heard in the back row. And a lot of people think that the more, um, you know, if, if, how can you be natural if you're bellowing like that to the back row? But if you're not bellowing to the back row and you can't be heard, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are. Having only done theater, that's the only way I know how to uh, right. basically so carry it. Yeah? But if you were auditioning for a film, say you were meeting with Martin Scorsese, you wouldn't be using your theater voice. You would be because on, in a film, you would be, be whispering and you could be heard. Because the mic is right over your head. All right. Well, good. I'm going to... The camera's right in your face. So Make sure Marty's you, aware you, of that. I think they would laugh at you if you went into a room for a film and were, you know, shouting to the rafters. Mm. That makes so much more sense about why well, I have been called back. Yeah. Cameras and the sound equipment do all the work for you. You have to trust that. So you can allow the emotion to go through your voice if you need to be quiet and intimate. Yes. It's all in the eyes. It's all in the eyes in film. You know, if you, if you look down, 
and then you look up and you've got your eyes full of tears, that may not play at the back row of a theater, but it certainly will in film. How long did it take you to get to that level of expertise? Oh, it's not expertise. I think just doing it. Also, I was a theater major in school. So uh, watching other people. I mean, you're trained to know when you're filling a space. And if you're on film, I think you just, I mean, I think instinctively, you know, less is more. So how soon after that did Guiding Light come along? Um, it was actually, I started testing for pilots around about the same time and um, got the Guiding Light, I want to say, 85. And how 85. many seasons were you on there? I was there one year. One year. Yeah. And what's that filming process like compared to, I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but... Think about how long it takes to make a film, like a big studio film with rewrites and reshoots and editing probably takes about maybe eight, nine months to make a really good big studio film with lots of money, okay? To, to turn out an hour and a half or two hours of film. A soap opera is turning out an hour a day. So there doesn't, there's not much room for, uh, what's the word? Fixing, fixing things. <laughs> You're things not fixing go. things in post because in a film, you may have a few cameras all over the place and then the editor puts together all the different takes. In a soap opera, at least in the 80s, I don't know what it's like anymore. You have three or four cameras, and when the camera's light is on, that's the angle they're using. It's being edited as it's being shot. And it's lit very quickly, and um, set production ver happens very fast. To produce an hour a day, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. So in the 80s, when you would watch soap operas, when I watch on YouTube now... I laugh because people are standing, talking to somebody in a shadow, and then all of a sudden you'll see them move ever so slightly, and all of a sudden they're in the light now. They found their light, but there's no time to fix it. Or you'll hear nothing but footprints. You'll hear people's feet moving on the floor, like if it's a big party scene, and there's no time to clean it up or edit it out. One of the things that I'm fascinated by in the soap world is that the longevity of actors in their roles. Is it one of the, like John Aniston, for example, uh, who's, who'd been on Days of Our Lives for the longest time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And is there like ever this ambition to do more than the one role on the one soap for decades? Well, I don't know about other people, um, but I think that it, it a lot of it has to do with timing. Those people who do roles for a long time, usually what will happen is you'll have an actress like, say, well, I, uh, uh, well, Susan, what's her name from? Uh, Susan. Lucci? Um, yes. God, I couldn't think of her name. She decided that she really liked commuting into the city. She was able to raise her family on Long Island. She was making buckets of money. And every time she thought about leaving, they would offer her more and more money. But she was able to tuck her kids in at bed at night. For, for people who are parents and actors, that's huge. Yeah, you can't sacrifice that type of security. Kids. Yeah. So when you were in your 20s, uh, was this going through your mind as you were auditioning for from role to role 
Yeah, but in my 20s, I didn't know. I didn't care. I wasn't thinking about staying home. I would have, you know, loved to travel, loved to do films and and travel and go all over the place. But I also wanted to be able to pay my rent mm-hmm. and um, had a New York apartment, which is not cheap. <laughs> and I started making a lot of commercials, making a lot of money doing commercials and doing a soap opera was just the same kind of thing. So for a year, I did The Guiding Light and I moved out to L.A. with, you know, a, a healthy savings account. And was uh, when was this in relation to getting cast as Shelby? Okay, so this was all in New York in the eighties, eighty four, eighty five. Um, we did. We started Tony and Tina's wedding, and it became a massive hit. And I moved to Los Angeles. We, the, Tony and Tina's wedding was brought to Los Angeles and I came with it, but I, first I went up to the Jiva theater in Rochester to do a play. And I flew from Rochester, Rochester to Los Angeles to do Tony and Tina's wedding. And while I was in LA, my agent started sending me out. And that was when I auditioned for Shelby and got that. And I always thought I would stay. I only wanted to stay in LA for the four months that were the, um, the, the contract was for four months and I ended up never leaving. So Shelby was, uh, I think I auditioned for that in 89, 90, 1990, I think was when we did the first episode. I know that it came out in 90, uh, yeah. the part two came out in September cause you know, sweeps and everything. Right. Here's the funny thing though. I didn't see part one. I was a big star Trek fan, but mm-hmm. I went out of town before the season finale. Oh, and I had really no clue what was going to happen. So I come back to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in high school at the time. And I get mobbed by my friends saying, you have no idea what just happened. And, <laughs> the, the, and I, I didn't believe them. Like I knew there was, it was going to involve the Borg. I knew that something like big was going to happen because they had only appeared once before. But when they said it ended with a to be continued, because we didn't have the word cliffhanger in our vocabulary at the time. I am Locutus of Borg. Resistance is futile. Your life as it has been is over. From this time forward, you will service us. Mr. Worf, fire. Uh, and, and it ended with Riker saying, Mr. Warfire. And I said, you're joking. And then I had to wait for <laughs> the episode to come back. So I didn't really suffer that summer that you may have heard other people did. Mm-hmm. And I think my story is a bit unique in that regard. And That's then funny. when I finally saw it, I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that I didn't see this because I wouldn't have been able to think about having fun during summer. That is so funny. I have maybe two questions regarding Shelby because all of the information is out there. 
and mm -hmm. you've been asked time and again. That's okay. Well, the one question, well, one of the questions that I have is, did you ever, were you ever provided or did you come up with a first name for her? No, I wasn't provided with a first name. I used to, when I would go to conventions, I'd say, um, you know, I'd play with people and say, uh, what was her first name? People would go crazy. No, I don't think they, I was just Lieutenant Commander Shelby. That was it. And then Shelby got promoted. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. It's so weird for me as I'm 59 and I was 28 when I did that. And my son is now 22. It's just kind of mind blowing that people <laughs> still care so much. Um, the second question I have regarding that is, is about filming. So you are there, put in place for this final shot, and then you go on hiatus mm -hmm. and everybody's tanned and rested. And you can tell everybody's tanned and rested in the next shot. So how much attention was paid to resetting everybody as if no time had passed? Well, my biggest worry was not gaining any weight. Because when I did episode one, I ate nothing but fruit. I mean, I was so, that jumpsuit is, <laughs> that jumpsuit is not kidding. And I was so terrified of uh, putting on any weight and then to wait the summer and then have to look exactly the same. So that was my biggest concern. The other thing was that it was a different hair person when I came back. So that trying to recreate, and first of all, I'm just going to be honest. I hated my, my hair. <laughs> I thought it was really dowdy and frumpy and very old looking. And the, um, but you know, we were stuck with it because of continuity. So we had to recreate that. All right, that's fine. But wait, like I just had to spend that summer, you know, eating as little as possible. Um, just so I didn't look completely different. And, you know, it's, it's a very unforgiving. How stressful was that? I mean, were you able to at least relax during that summer? Here's the thing. I'm going to be honest with you. Please. I was not, a, I not into sci-fi. I was, when you were the age you were and you were into sci-fi, my thing was British TV, upstairs, downstairs, King wives of King Henry the eighth, um, brides had revisited. I was not interested in sci-fi at all. I had never seen the original Star Trek, had never seen next generation. When I got the script, I had no idea who Riker was. I didn't know if he was the baldy guy or who he was. <laughs> I had no idea. It was just a job. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have the investment that a true fan has. Like it was just a job. Oh, that's cool. I got this job and then we shot it. And, um, and Jonathan Frakes even said to me, you have absolutely no idea what it is you have just gotten yourself into. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he started telling me about the conventions and everything and the fans. And I was like, get out of here, get out of here. So it really did take me by surprise. But remember, I was 28. I was mm -hmm. like, you know, young, footloose and fancy free, you Hungry. know, the world came home to New York for the summer, you know, just being truly, really mindful of not, you know, eating, eating a lot, eating my body weight, just being really cautious about it. And remember, we didn't have part two script until we came back. No, none of us had any idea. We had no idea how they were going to wrap it up. So, People kept asking, yeah, what did you, you know? do in that uh, in meantime? Like, you know, okay, they say cut. I and, didn't have a clue. I mean, like during the day, what did you do? You're, I'm assuming well, you're I mean, in L.A. for those uh, four months. I wasn't 
I, I was in New York for pretty much the whole summer. Ah. I'm from New York. Back to New York to visit my friends and my family. Excellent. See, that is something that I bet no one knew. <laughs> yeah, this was. I mean, I'm from New York, so I went. And my mother lived right on the ocean, um, uh, uh, in near Jones Beach, and I went out and visited my friends and went on with my life, but like a 28 year old does. Mm -hmm. Like what? You know, if I had been, I'm so glad that I wasn't a fan. I'm so glad that I wasn't hugely invested in this because I think I would have been really nervous. And as it was, it was just another job, you know, just another day. Um, I made, I made, I became buds with, uh, I loved Brent and I loved Michael Dorn and I looked forward to seeing them again, but we had no idea what was the script was going to be when, when we came That's back. That's the mythology and, surrounding fact, it. Yes. That I, I, I say at the conventions is if it were now, I think I would have been fired the first day because I did not know my lines well enough. And I've said that at conventions. <laughs> um, I really struggled that first day. Um, really struggled because it was very different. I, I got to say this on the um, Cliff Bowles and I sat down and we did a, a Blu-ray disc of Best of Both Worlds. Yeah, I, I, I actually that. I told them that the first day it, yeah. I so messed up my lines that I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be fired. But the next day I came in like letter perfect because on a soap opera, you rehearse the whole show. Then you shoot the whole show. So it could be 15 hours before they get to your scene. And so then I get to start uh, next gen and they're like, we rehearse a scene. Now we're shooting that scene. I said, oh my God, are you kidding me? I thought I had all day to learn my lines. Yeah, that, so that was, uh, yeah, that not. rehearsal process, that truncated rehearsal process is something that I would find very intimidating. You have to know your lines. You have to know them in your bones. And uh, now that I've worked as a dialogue coach and an acting teacher, I know the difference between knowing it enough, like to pass the test, but really knowing your lines in your bones so that you can't possibly say them wrong. There's no way you can say them wrong or fumble over them at all. And I, um, my very first day of shooting was, um, I had the line projection suggests that a Borg ship like this one could continue to function effectively if 78% of it were rendered inoperable and I couldn't get it out. I couldn't. <laughs> projection suggests that a Borg ship like this one could continue to function effectively even if 78% of it was inoperable. And uh, everybody was getting really frustrated and I was so embarrassed. And I do think that if it happened now, I would have been fired. Wow. Um, yeah, it was terrible. It was, I, I wake up in a cold sweat just thinking about it still to this day, how bad I was. Well, you, um, you nailed the role and to the point where, so the series is announced for Star Trek Voyager and they're looking to cast the big thing in, um, at least the proto internet of those days is that we're going to have to have a female captain now. Right. And I, I feel like I was one who was leading the charge to have Shelby be the captain of this new starship. I mm -hmm. learned that you auditioned. Now, did you go on audition for the role of Janeway or did you just audition to maybe um, to reprise your role? I, I think I auditioned for Janeway. I can't remember, honestly. It was so long ago. Um, but I remember feeling like, really, do I have to audition? But like I said, <laughs> I was very, very green. I mean, this was my first 
job in the real world. That wasn't a commercial. That wasn't a soap opera. You know, it was, it was, uh, and I did atrocious work on the first day. I'm being brutally honest. And so, um, you know, they, they, they got a star as, like I was saying before, they're always going to have offers out to stars. Well, they, um, the story is that, uh, they cast Genevieve Bujold first. Right. And she didn't work out because her background was in film and she wasn't used to the episodic act breaks of television. And then Kate Mulgrew came in uh, with that experience. Oh, so I was, I thought I heard, and I don't remember even where I heard this. I love Genevieve Bougeau, by the way, but she refused to wear makeup. That was what I heard was that she did not, she didn't want to wear makeup. Oh, that's it's a new rumor to throw around the internet now. I mean, that's what I heard through the grapevine, mm -hmm. but I can't imagine that that would be reason enough. You, I think you, I, I find it hard to believe. I think you would know that early enough. It wouldn't be a surprise that you would have to replace her. Um, I, I don't know, but I remember hearing that and going, well, okay. The shows have been known to cast actors with Shakespearean backgrounds. Now you teach Shakespeare, uh, mm -hmm. to kids of how, what age? I teach, um, high school sophomores. Talk to me like I'm a high school sophomore. What is it about Shakespeare that is separate from other forms of theater? What, what is it about the language that uh, makes it so unique and uh, sought after? Um, are you a Hamilton fan? Uh, yeah, I guess you could say I am. You've listened to it, right? Yes, I have. Never seen it, though. Oh, right. You've never seen it. I think Shakespeare does what Lin-Manuel Miranda does. And I'm not the first one to say this. I'm quoting Oscar Eustace who runs the public theater. And he said, Lin-Manuel Miranda does what Shakespeare does by using verse and poetry elevates the, our history um, to a poetic level. What I, when I talk to kids about Shakespeare, what I think is so great about him is unlike the people who are writing at the same time as him, where kings were smarter and wiser and braver or meaner and more evil than regular people, in Shakespeare's world, the kings and the servants all had the same self-doubts, the same insecurities, the same fears of poverty, of being criticized, of being ridiculed. And so when like people say, like Harold Bloom, who wrote about Shakespeare, that Shakespeare invented the human, I think that's what he means. When you have a king in a cell talking about how lonely and sad he is. Or a king going mad because he lost the love of his daughter. King, king going mad because he cared about the wrong things, mm. you know, that he thought that the praise and the hyperbole meant that they loved him when the what was really real didn't need to be say, said out loud. So, I mean, not so, to correct you, just to No, add, no, that, that's but, the whole point is that uh, you, this is one of those things where... A one, one who is not experienced in this genre uh, mm -hmm. and a genre that is amazingly important to the course of art in the world. Mm -hmm. It is important for something like that to be corrected. Yes. Yeah, so I think that what people who are turned off to Shakespeare, when I really dig a little bit deeper with them, it's usually because they saw a terrible production of it or they had a really terrible teacher in school who was very boring about it. 
But if you see really good productions of it, um, where the language soars and it's very accessible and the creators are making the message so clear that you can apply what is being said to your own life experience, that can turn people on to Shakespeare. And if you see something really, really boring, really dull, like a museum piece, it would turn you off forever. Okay. So I just posted the other day after, during the impeachment trials, a quote from Macbeth. And it goes like this. I think our country sinks beneath the yoke. It weeps, it bleeds. And each new day, a gash is added to her wounds. That was written 400 years ago. Very timely. Okay. So then another friend of mine who's a Shakespeare enthusiast added a line from King John. And I quote, but as I traveled hither through the land, I find the people strangely fantasied, possessed with rumors, full of idle dreams, not knowing what they fear, but full of fear. It's 400 years old. Okay. So there's a speech. And I think not to say, oh my God, nothing has changed. But I, I, I feel this way about the humans. Like people, a lot of people came to the humans are like, why would I want to watch something that depressing? Well, could you relate to it? Did it feel like your family? Well, yes. But I love going to see plays where somebody has articulated so eloquently a common universal experience in words more eloquent than I could ever come up with. Have you passed this uh, appreciation on to your kids? Usually I'm able to get all of them to what I say in the beginning of the year. I don't not guaranteeing that all of you are going to love Shakespeare by the end of the year, but I trust that you won't be afraid of it anymore. You mm. will be able to take a text, take a speech, decipher its meaning, hammer it out and not be afraid of it anymore. And what about with your own within your own family? <laughs> so well, I mean, my, I, we were brought up in the theater my, with, with my, um, my, my father's influence, always going to the theater, theater, we're talking about theater, theater all the time. So it was something I never even thought about. My first play on Broadway was Godspell. When they did it, when I was in the eighth grade, of course I auditioned for Jesus and I got it and I gave it my all. I gave it everything I had. I loved performing more than anything. And then, um, this is a funny thing with my, my husband is an actor. And when our children were born, we were like, we are not, we are breaking this pattern right now. They're not even going to know what it is we do. We're going to shield them. They're going to go to proper schools and they're going to be proper professional people who make good livings, who don't spend time on unemployment, who don't trudge <laughs> from audition to audition without health insurance, not knowing if they're going to have enough money to pay the rent. And I have an actor and I have a filmmaker and we tried. <laughs> so what, what it proves to us is they come out hardwired and they were at a very highly academic school and they just weren't, they weren't happy. Their, their souls weren't being fulfilled. They really, really needed a creative outlet. My kids loved the school of rock. Um, that was something that they were passionate about and they both played music and they both performed shows. And then, um, my older boy was just at a very academic school and not doing well at all. And he auditioned for LOXA, which is where I teach 
the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. And he got in and he ended up doing very well there and getting big parts. And then he was a theater major in college because he really didn't care about academics. Um, but he loved performing and he loved acting and he's doing very well. He graduated from the DePaul Theater School in June and um, is still in Chicago and doing very well there. And then my younger son is a filmmaker. He's a film film student at NYU. So there you go. <laughs> we tried. We tried to break the chain and we failed colorfully. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure there's a lot of pride there as well. I'm so proud of them. And then as you get older, you realize, God, life is short. Do what you love. You know, I think I just thought, um, you know, the business is heartbreaking. I see so many incredibly talented friends of mine who have never gotten agents, have never worked professionally, have never really gotten off the ground. People who I think should be working and who aren't. And then I see people who do have agents who do work, but not enough. And they're, and I think 5% of the Screen Actors Guild members are people who actually make a living and the even fewer percent, like maybe two or 3% are people that you've even heard of. And That's the rest depressing. are just you would shield, members. You would shield your child from that. From that type of rejection? Yes. Or at least, at the very least, prepare. But how do well, you prepare? Well, you know, my father always said to me, it's very, very hard. It's a brutal business. But I thought he meant the work was hard. And I love the work. I didn't know he meant that I would be going to audition after audition, feeling like I did really, really well, smoking my auditions and still not getting anywhere. I don't know what I would have done differently, but um, I didn't realize that that's what he meant. Hmm. Speaking so, as a fan of your um, work and a fan of your dad's, I realized that I actually seen more of your stuff than of your dad's and um like i've seen gattaca red dragon of course star trek um, well he loves it when people go up to him and say are you uh, elizabeth denny's father nice yeah and uh yeah. will you Love be that. waiting for that for your kids i am waiting for them to thank me in their acceptance speeches and support us in our old age <laughs> <laughs> Good. I mean, isn't that what yeah. we want? Yeah, that's actually my uh, goal for, for my kid is that, you know, I'm being really, really nice to her so that I get put in a good home. Exactly. How old is your daughter? She is 12. Oh, boy, you're about to enter it. Yeah. Um, but uh, so far, it, it's been okay. Uh, Acting-wise, she got cast in... Uh, once on this island, um, she's taking voice lessons, and I'm hoping she'll take acting lessons too. But my goal, of course, is you know academics, academics, and we just got a report card back, yeah. and she did A's and B's, so I'm thrilled with yeah. that too. Yeah. I'm just going to be spending my money um, buying Iron Man statues, uh, so I'm counting on her to get that scholarship. Good, 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 excellent, <laughs> excellent. So I hope I answered your questions about Shakespeare. Um, you know, uh, um, I, I, one more thing I, I wouldn't mind saying is the difference between acting Shakespeare and acting in modern texts, like either film or TV or modern plays. And this is something that I think um, I try to instill in the kids is in modern texts. Uh, everybody is playing their feelings, showing what the character feels about what they're saying. And in Shakespeare, we don't care about 
how you feel about what you're saying. What is happening? Tell us the story. Serve the story. That is the most important thing. And in a way, I think that that's kind of a relief when I work with kids. I'm like, it doesn't matter. You know, this whole notion of I can't play it if unless I'm feeling it. Mm. Well, we're not going to sit here in our hundred dollar seats waiting for you to have your feelings. So to just tell the story and serve the play, it's kind of freeing in a way. Let the words do the work. Let the words do the work. Trust the words. Yeah, trust the words. Exactly. So um, I, I, I love it. As a profession, uh, have you noticed anything change in terms of uh, the professionalism within the theater community or Hollywood, uh, especially in the light of uh, the most recent years? Um, one of the biggest changes that I think is really exciting is the um, non-binary gender acceptance. So when I started teaching... Um, colleges would say you couldn't switch, you couldn't audition with opposite gender monologues. All of that is gone now. And when I was at the Globe Theatre in London this past summer, I saw all the parts of Henry IV, part one, part two, and Henry V all played with females playing the guy parts. So that has blown the roof off of everything. And also you see it in TV and films, people who are trans playing parts, what is their gender? Doesn't matter. It's immaterial. They're human beings playing a part. So that has blown um, the, the roof right off the business so that everybody can play whatever part. Incredible. That is very encouraging, I know, for a lot of the folks that I work with. Yeah. I'm right now doing, um, last year I did a scene of, um, I do this evening of scenes with my kids, and one of the boys uh, played, um, uh, Juliet's nurse in a scene with Juliet and it was hilarious. And you know what? He would be an awesome nurse, Juliet's nurse. And this year I'm doing uh, the French princess and the French maid scene with Henry V. And the, um, the, the French maid is going to be a boy. Playing. He speaks fluent French. So I was like, I'd be crazy not there to you cast go. him. So there you go. So that is a lot of fun. That makes things a lot of fun because the boys in Shakespeare have all the best parts. <laughs> Girls have great parts too. But the fact that I have, oh, I have a girl playing Hamlet too. Um, it just, to not have to worry about that anymore is so great. So freeing. Uh, in your uh, career, are there roles that you've cherished versus, and roles that you've like, oh my God, this is ridiculous? I didn't love the soap opera that, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I think the fact that it was churning out an hour a day, just, it was, we had no time to make things, you know, better, just no time to, to really rehearse and make things deep. My favorite parts in the whole world that I ever played were, um, I did a TV pilot um, with Robert Urich of a show called The Lazarus Man. And I don't even know if that's in existence anywhere. Um, I've looked for it on DVD, but it was a Western shot in Santa Fe, um, which is so beautiful. And I got to shoot a gun and ride a buckboard with a horse and buggy and punch, punch a soldier. It was so much fun. I loved my costumes. I loved my hair. And he was just a dream to work with. He was just awesome. Uh, that was so sad that he died so mm -hmm. young. Um, that was a great part. And um, for a long time, my favorite theater part that I played I really loved playing Stella in Streetcar Named Desire. And um, I did Dancing at Lunasa at South Coast Rep with my husband. 
I played Chrissy, and that was a great time. But this latest part in The Humans was a, just a fantastic part to sink my teeth into. That was very, very richly rewarding. The, do you have any upcoming projects? Well, now that The Humans has ended, I'm actually going to be doing starting a student film. Um, I haven't done one of these in a long time, but because I work at, at, at LOXA and my son um, was a film student there, I'm helping out one of his, um, his friends uh, in a student film that I just happen to have the days free. And it, it, her, her name, you might recognize her last name is Roxy Sorkin. Ah, Sorkin, yes. Uh, I know two Sorkins. So I, yes, so I wasn't going to say no to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be playing a, a mom in that, um, shooting that over a couple of days. And then mostly really just focused on my Shakespeare kids. And they have a couple of competitions coming up. And um, the, the evening of Shakespeare scenes that we're going to be doing in March. So really focused on that. I've been, I've been neglecting them while I've been in San Diego. So... Um, I need to whip them into shape. So, uh, yeah. So, and, and, you know, going down to San Diego and living in a little apartment, I, um, I'm very happy to be back home with my dogs and my hubby and, uh, straightening up and putting everything away and just cleaning up, you know, basically (laughs) life stuff that I have neglected for the last few months. Last quick thing. Um, going back to Star Trek, uh, there was a big deal made earlier, um, like a few weeks ago. Star Trek Picard just came out on CBS All Access. Uh-huh. It's been uh, greenlit for season two, and Patrick Stewart had appeared on The View and formally asked Whoopi Goldberg to reprise her role as Guinan. If somebody comes to you and asks you to reprise your role as uh, <laughs> Shelby, would you do it? Um, I would, I would love to not have to wear the, the onesie, the, 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 um, Mm, unitard. mm -hmm. I really, really hate that. And I don't think anybody wants to see that. Um, so if they can make, uh, a costume that's a little bit, uh, more, uh, user-friendly, that would be awesome. Yeah, no, I would love to do that. I would love to. Well, from what we see on the show, I don't think you have to worry about that, nor would you have to worry about anybody not wanting to see you. Oh, please. <laughs> You're very sweet. But um, yeah, and Issa, Issa Briones is a good friend of mine. She acted in one of my son's student films called Carpool. So um, just a little fun fact. There's literally six people in the business, and we all know each other. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, I met my wife through it. She met her now husband through it. Uh, mm-hmm. We're all friends. We all know each other. It's, it's, I guess it's the same wherever you go. And heck, I mean, the fact that we got in touch was through our uh, mutual friend, Karen, who oh, we Karen. all know. Each- and here's the thing. I, I've known her for about 20 years, and we have not worked together Face to face. She's never directed me. I've never acted opposite her, beside her. She's produced some of the stuff that I've been in. Um, but yeah, that that's the crazy thing about this area. Huh. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of theater going on. Oh, plenty. Yeah, there's plenty. Oh, that's great. You have that's to come great. here and, and experience it for yourself. It's something else. There's always wow. something to do theatrically. Right. That, that offers pay. Well. 
<laughs> I'm thinking as a theater goer. Oh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I did do um, a show at the Kennedy Center in, God, I can't remember what year it was. I did a play called Oprah Comique, which was about the first night of Bizet's Carmen. And it starred Ann Jackson and Eli Wallach, which gives you an idea of how long ago it was. <laughs> and we closed a week early because it was on during the Oliver North trial. Like nobody was coming to the theater. I remember getting reviewed by the Post, the Washington Post. Um, I was uh, a pianist for a production of Guys and Dolls. And um, the Post reviewer accurately, and thankfully didn't mention me by name, uh, said that the piano player uh, played, made so many mistakes it was excruciating. And for the next 24 hours, I was in a funk. And I made myself feel better by saying, you know, it isn't every day you get panned in the paper that broke Watergate. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so. Yeah. So that's <laughs> that's that's my uh, critic story. And I am so thankful for you to have come on the show. This is, uh, you know, basically a dream come true for me. Oh, um, you're so sweet. And uh, I hope for all the best success. I hope to get to actually meet you in person. Thank oh, you for making this. Um, thank you for helping 2020 start off on a very high note for me. That's it for this episode of Arts Review and Commentary. My thanks to Elizabeth Dennehy for taking the time to be on this episode. Like and follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Arc Reviews, and shop Fandango and Amazon at omarlatiri.com and artsreviewandcommentary.com. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is Arc. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network. Shakespeare went through the door. Really? Yeah. Everyone's talking about it. It's probably for the best. His last 4,000 plays were not nearly as good as the ones he wrote on Earth. I mean, did you see The Tempest 2? Here we blow again? Mm. Woof. <laughs> <laughs>